Hello and welcome once again to Rasslin Memories on Pioneer 90.1 KSRQ online. You can listen live at RadioNorthland.org. We're on the TuneIn app as well. And you can find uh, the archives, past episodes, at the Radio Northland page on SoundCloud. Hi, Glenn Broggett. Back with you once again for another week of wrestling memories then and even now uh, with my co-host down there deep in the heart of Texas, uh, Mike McCurdy. Mike, uh, I know you're ready. You've been chomping at the bit to get uh, into another episode of wrestling memories. Always, always, man. I look forward to uh, each week getting to talk to uh, you know listeners and all that and do some great interviews with our great guests. So, yeah, another week. And yeah, like I told you earlier, a little cold here in the great state of texas we're back down into the 30s today even though we were 71 <laughs> yesterday so uh, <laughs> yeah we've been okay i mean we've been in the 30s bro and now we're kind of getting a little bit cooler but i mean this cool is not exactly the average february cold so you know what we're almost through the month over halfway through the month so i'm not going to complain too much and i have a vacation coming up so uh, much needed by the way, I, I'm uh, kind of coming down the stretch here before uh, I get going, and I'm like overworked and uh, just just tired. Oh, definitely. You're, where you're going, it ain't going to be cold. You're going to Arizona for the Innings Festival, I believe it is. Correct, correct, sir. Going to spend a week out there as well. Going to check out some of that spring training baseball. Going to drive around the state a little bit. Taste uh, a few of the finest, wonderful uh, restaurant selections there. So it's going to be a good time, man. If you're and in court- Phoenix, maybe you can find Bill Anderson. Well, I don't know. I'll have to have to ask around. <laughs> but you, my friend, have lined up a great guest this week, and uh, I've been uh, reading um, her book, and I've been really finding it to be quite interesting, fascinating stuff, uh, uh, and just just a, a look at a man who's uh, well. We've had a lot to look at through the years, especially uh, last year and into the future. Here, we we're talking about one Vincent Kennedy McMahon. Oh, definitely. Vince McMahon has, uh, you know, definitely been in the news last year, this year, and probably every year for the last uh, however many years he's been involved in the sport of wrestling, uh, you know, both good and bad, I guess. But before we start with the guest, um, I just kind of wanted to, you know, make mention because unfortunately we had another passing this week at the time of this recording. Uh, just a couple days ago, we lost Jerry Jarrett, famous Memphis yes. wrestling promoter, father of of course, Jeff Jarrett, you know, and we're going to have uh, Mark James on in a few weeks to talk about, you know, Jerry and all that. But once mm-hmm. again, another passing in the wrestling world, man. There's just been way too many this year so far. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I had a chance uh, on a couple episodes here of Wrestling Memories. Got to go through the archives. Uh, well, actually, one pre-Wrestling Memories was when uh, Jerry's book came out that Mark uh, James had worked on and put out. Uh, had a chance, did an hour interview with him. Great, great stuff. And it was just a few years ago when they were launching that wrestling channel. Uh, him and another gentleman were on the show. Alan and, Parsons. Uh, Alan, Alan Parsons? Parsons? I think Adam Parsons. The, okay, okay. I was Adam Parsons. Alan Parsons. He had a project no, all of his own. Uh, yeah, Sorry. we were able to uh, get a chance to talk with him, and it was oh, it was enjoyable. The guy is, uh, you know, was was walking history, and now. Uh, he's not with us. I mean, look at all the things he did with Memphis Wrestling. And you talk about the early years of what is now Impact Wrestling with NWA TNA, the weekly pay-per-view tape. I mean, that was pretty bold. I mean, post, you know, WCW to be able to go out and take a chance like that. And for a few years, uh, Jerry had been pretty hands-on uh, in the company until the, the eventual sale. So, yeah, this guy, he, and he still kept it pretty up, uh, uh, kept up with modern products. So this was a guy that really lived and breathed professional wrestling, uh, definitely a trait he got from his uh, mother, Teeny. 
Oh, definitely. And Jerry has uh, definitely got his place in uh, you know, professional wrestling history. Like you said, just just his work in promoting in Memphis. I mean, that's where you know we had Lawler and Kaufman, which is probably one of the first you know celebrity things in wrestling. And I mean, to this day, people still talk about. About that, and that was, you know, part of the Memphis territory where Jerry Jarrett was at. So, you know, of course, his son, him, formed, you said, uh, you know, NWA TNA, which is now going on as Impact Wrestling. And Jerry Jarrett does tie in with the subject of uh, the book that our guest has written because during the time of the steroid trial back in, in the 90s, Jerry Jarrett was possibly being looked at as the apparent to kind of run WWE mm-hmm. in case, uh, or WWF in case Vince McMahon, you know, did not come out on the good side of things in that bit trial. of a care, bit of a caretaker kind of while Vince was sweating out uh, yet another dodge uh, with the government. Yes, uh, yes, but someone who did the research though is our guest today, and uh, yeah, we get to this book. Mike, talk about the name of the book. Tell the name of the, the rest of the listeners. Pardon me about the name of the book and introduce our guest for this edition of Wrestling Memories, buddy. The book we are we are talking about actually is Ringmaster Vince McMahon and the Unmasking of America, Unmaking of America. Excuse me, I'm trying to read in small print here. <laughs> and our guest today on Wrestle Memories is the author of this book, Abraham Josephine Reisman. Abraham, welcome to the show. Oh, it's so nice to be here. I I was really looking forward to this, and uh, I still am. So fire away. Well, it's always good when our guests are looking forward to talking with us. <laughs> I know. It's better than the alternative. Did you expect her to come on and just do monosyllabic answers for the full hour, Mike? That would <laughs> no. Hey, I could just hey. be like Radiohead in the 90s or something and just be like, yeah, fame sucks. I, my record company made me do this or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've had, I've had those guests before. I've interviewed Oh, of course. I've had interviews like that. Before, so. <laughs> yeah, we all kind of get in get our badge there for, for that. I mean, there's always one you just can't crack. You, try to, you think you have the yeah. right questions, and you're, like, uh, totally hitting that uh, dead end, and it's like, why did he even bother breathing, let alone calling this person or contacting this person? Oh, my God. I know. The, you know, there were a lot of people like that in wrestling, either because they're sort of legends in their own mind or whatever their other reasons may be. But I was actually surprised. There were a lot of people who were just huge stars in the wrestling world who were just dudes you know <laughs> just you talk to them and they just wanted to tell you their stories now whether their stories could actually be trusted is a completely other question but you can gather those stories from a lot of the old wrestling hands be they wrestlers or hangers-on or otherwise engaged well, definitely, and uh, as we all know, that sometimes the wrestlers tell the stories enough that you know they make them true in their own mind, right. So. <laughs> right. You work. I mean, working yourself into a shoot is kind of the the baseline level of commitment that you get when you go into kayfabe. You oh, know, I have this in- phrase that I use in the book, which is kayfabe beats everything. And I will completely admit, I am very nervous. I'm not making this up. I'm very nervous about this book coming out because I've seen the effect that other real world events have had, or rather, the effect wrestling has had on real-world people who are involved in events that enmesh them with wrestling throughout history. Like, it it can kind of, not necessarily be a curse, but it can just become part of your life. This, it's not just an assignment for work. Once you, like, touch the the ever-evolving, ever-mutating blob that is kayfabe, and it responds to you, then you're kind of, part of you exists in this alternate universe of wrestling. Well, let's get this interview started, and let's kind of talk a little Please. bit. I always like to ask uh, the guests a little bit about their background in wrestling. And uh, from reading a previous interview you did with uh, 
a, a guest of ours previously on the show, Jamie Hemmings. Jamie Hemmings, yeah. yeah, that was a great chat. Oh, we love Jamie here on the show. She's been a guest many times. Terrific. But your introduction to wrestling was, uh, you know, kind of interesting, and it involves a uh, handmade Hulk Hogan t-shirt. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, my, but I dedicated the book to my mother because uh, when I was about six, I was trying to do the math on when it was, and it must have been. It was late stage Hogan WWF one. You know, like. His initial run in, not really the initial, because he had that initial thing of the WWF or whatever, but, you know, his his epic run was sort of coming to a close. Uh, it was, so it must have been 1991 or something. Um, but I was young. I was probably about six. And I caught Hogan on TV. And it's funny to think now, he was kind of in this real slump at the time, or at least a downward slope. But I had never seen him before. I was I just hadn't come across him or at least if I had he hadn't had an impact on me but I saw him and he blew my mind. It's so hard to even articulate what my mind was fixated on about him, but he completely captured my imagination at that age. And the thing that I most found fascinating and who can explain these things? They're all vibes and aesthetics, but they have real impacts on you. Um was him ripping his shirt off. He would, as you know, go into the ring and take his Hulkamania shirt or whatever the shirt said and just rip it in two. And I thought they were made of something else than cotton or whatever. I figured this must be some special kind of shirt that you can rip apart because he's doing it so easily. And it just I didn't know shirts could do that. So I asked my mother, could I have a rip apart shirt? And instead, oh, God bless her, instead of <laughs> telling me no such thing exists, my, my child, and this is not going to happen, she took a shirt of mine that I didn't use much or didn't feel attached to, and she cut a slit down the middle of the chest and then put in little holes on either side of the slit and then put through shoestrings so I could sort of pull it apart with a little tug and it would separate but still be a coherent thing that i could then tighten again and then pull apart again i have no idea where this shirt is i wish i could find it but it was it was such a wonderful gesture on my mother's part and also an indicator of the power that wrestling can have even on a very young brain that said i did not really fall in love with wrestling until about seven odd years later um when i was in seventh grade and it was the spring of 1999 to situate you in wrestling history. And I had spent the previous couple of years really hating wrestling, not watching it. But all of my bullies were big fans of Attitude Era wrestling. Like they constantly talked about Stone Cold Steve Austin from like, you know, late 96 onward, you know, from like King of the Ring onward. He was this really viral phenomenon among millennials. And... I just couldn't stand the stuff. I didn't watch it, but I just knew I couldn't stand it because the people I hated liked it. And then in 1999, my best friend Brian was watching just channel surfing, and he caught some of Raw. And he, I asked him, and unfortunately he doesn't remember what it was, but he saw something that was so outrageous and com completely insane and Baroque that he was like, he called me up and he was like, you have to watch this. This is not what you think it is. Like, it's not just a sweaty, fake sport. It's art, like it's something weird and wonderful. Um, who knows how he phrased it, but it was something along those lines. And it was enough to get me to give it a shot. And sure enough, I fell in love too. And um, so that was when I was 13. And for about three years, I became 
a real wrestling head. Now, I was not as uh, educated about what happened behind the scenes as a lot of people were, and I didn't get as into Japanese or Mexican wrestling as other people did. Uh, those were people that kind of took it to the next level. But when it comes to just brain time that I spent thinking about pro wrestling and specifically WWF wrestling, I was way deep in it. You know, I spent a lot of time thinking about wrestling and watching wrestling and learning wrestling lore and all of that. But, you know, it was lore. It wasn't real information. Like, I wasn't even reading the dirt sheets back then. I, like, would read a couple of websites that had rumors about stuff that was happening currently. But I didn't really show much interest in the past of wrestling. Because wrestling kind of hides its past in general, you know? Like, it's not that there's a lack of stories about the past. But it's very focused on the present at all times. Or the recent past. Or a very selective vision of the distant past. So I didn't get much of that past when I was, you know, 13 to 16. And then the invasion storyline happened after the WCW purchase in 2001. And I was like, you know what? This is boring now. I'm, I'm not interested anymore. And I wasn't alone in that. You know, I'm in some ways, I'm just a fair weather fan, right? You know, I was I watched briefly when I was a kid, then watched during the Attitude Era and then didn't tough it out. So if that disqualifies me as a credible researcher, so be it. But I basically didn't watch it for about 20 years, you know? But that said, it was as though I had lived in a different country for three years and learned how to be conversational in the language, learned a lot about how the place works. I was not an expert and I never would have claimed to be an expert as of when I started this book, um, but I knew the lay of the land and I knew I could get back into it and I knew the right people to talk to. So, you know, I, in 2020, February of 2020, in fact, so exactly, almost exactly three years ago, um, I was having a conversation with my spouse about, who's an editor, S.I. Rosenbaum, editor and journalist, and um, we were brainstorming what the next book could be. And one of us mentioned wrestling, uh, mentioned Vince, rather. Uh, my spouse, S.I., has, uh, has done reporting on wrestling in the past. She covered... Uh, Killer Kowalski's funeral for a local newspaper, in fact. Um, but she had been interested in wrestling, so she had some vague understanding of Vince. I had a deeper but not bone-deep understanding of Vince. And whichever one of us brought it up in the conversation, I came back to it and was like, that Vince idea, that's a good idea. And I just plunged back in. And, you know, we can talk about everything from there on out, but that's, that's sort of a thumbnail of what my experience with wrestling had been prior to getting the book. Or getting getting prepared for the book. Now, being that you've been away from, uh, you, know, you said you hadn't watched it for twenty years, and you know the subject of Vince McMahon comes up, and you're kind of looking. At, what about Vince McMahon got your attention? Because I mean, most people think Vince McMahon. You think you're going to be a wrestling fan. You think you're going to be that hardcore person. You want to know about Vince McMahon. You know, you've been away from it. You right. haven't watched it in twenty years. Yeah, no. Vince had a very strong impression on me when I watched as a kid. It's funny, lately, you know, now that wrestling is something I don't have to watch as homework exactly, I've just been watching um, VHS rips of everything, you know, every Raw and SmackDown in chronological order in 1999, which was when I started watching wrestling, just out of curiosity. I'd watched a lot of it uh, for the book, um, but now I'm just sort of watching all the nooks and crannies, and it's fascinating because... When I jumped into watching wrestling, Vince was in this weird zone where his 
status as a face or heel was kind of ambiguous. Um, you know, there's this period at the beginning of the Mr. McMahon mythos where he's unambiguously the heel supreme and like redefines what a heel can be and blah, 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 all that stuff. But in 1999, they were experimenting with turning him face, perhaps long term. And they had him sort of on the audience's side for a good long while. And part of that was the first storyline that I remember following and getting excited about. I can't remember what my exact first time watching wrestling was, but the first storyline I got involved in was the greater power slash higher power storyline, which is now regarded as this complete joke, right? Like it was this, it was this storyline that is now thought of as a dud. But for me, it was my entry point. And I was a young kind of undiscerning youth watching this stuff. And I had no prior experience of better pro wrestling. So I was completely caught up in it. And I saw Vince McMahon being tormented. You know, the whole plot of it in that spring when I started watching was the greater power acting through The Undertaker is trying to ruin Vince McMahon's life and are, is doing all these horrific, sadistic things like, you know, capturing Stephanie. And this is Stephanie's debut in the WWF, I should say, as a real character. Um, you know, she gets kidnapped and is like, you know, they're threatening to sexually assault her and it's really awful. Um, but all of this was directed at making the audience uh, sympathize with Vince and sort of turn him face. And, you know, Austin saves Stephanie and Vince like thanks Austin and blah, blah, blah. So I start watching right when Vince is kind of this, he was hard, but he's melting. You know, he's becoming a nicer man. Maybe he's learning how to be better. And then at the same time, you have this greater power buildup. You're like, who is the greater power? Who could he be? You know, it's got to be somebody so diabolical that he's even worse than Vince McMahon and can make Vince McMahon even look like a hero. And of course, what I later learned was they didn't have a plan, you know, Russo and uh, and all of them, uh, including Vince, as to who the greater power would be. And so it stretched on for months and months because they couldn't figure out how to resolve it. And behind the scenes, what, of course, they re realized was the only thing that can destroy Vince and torment Vince is Vince. You know, maybe not in as poetic terms as that, but they were like, the only thing that makes sense here is this was all a diabolical decoy operation from the the person who is still the number one heel, somebody who we can't top, and that's Vince. So I was watching and feeling sympathetic for Vince throughout the spring, and then I was also wondering who the greater power was, and then voila, in June of 1999, you get that episode of Raw, where Vince tosses, well, you know, the hooded figure who is the greater power comes out and then tosses back the hood and there's Vince. You know, as dumb as that storyline is, anyone who watched wrestling back then can tell you that they in their mind's eye can see that face. Am I right? Like, you remember what his face looked like when oh, yeah. the greater... Yeah, it's... Even though it's a stupid ending to the story, that visual was so arresting to me. And I did not see it coming because I had no real prior experience of like how wrestling storylines work, you know, like I didn't, I was so gullible, but that's a really impressionable moment in media for me. I was like, this man is true evil, you know, like this is a, this is someone so sadistic that he would manipulate reality like that 
and make it seem as though he's being tortured by somebody who is actually himself and would not care that the collateral damage includes his own daughter, you know? And that was what Vince wanted me to feel, you know? That's That was the goal, was right. make people hate the heel. And in this case, there was the biggest heel was him. So, you know, I... Even though, and then after that, things get weird because he's a heel for a while. Then he sort of shades into being a face and then he turns into a heel. And like, then eventually he solidifies as the like, you know, aughts iteration of Mr. McMahon where he's just like a complete maniac, you know. Um, But in those early years, they kept sort of toying with having Vince be just sort of, you know, the boss and like not necessarily good or bad, but just, you know, dad. And that stuff wasn't as interesting to me. What was always interesting to me was when Vince was just pure, unadulterated, satanic evil as a character, as Mr. McMahon. I can't do a Vince impression very well, but yeah, the reveal of the higher power. The, uh, you know, it's me, Austin. It was me all along. With the yeah. Out eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's utterly it right memorable. It's so stupid, <laughs> but it's so executed in the exact right way that you can't, you can't forget it. And that's the goal of wrestling, right? It's not even necessarily quality in wrestling. It's can we pierce your channel surfing attention span? Can we pierce your heart? Can we pierce your your suspension of disbelief? All of that, you know, you want to just get at the human brain, get at the id, get at the impulses. And sometimes that doesn't require your narrative to make any sense. You know, it's just about the reaction that it gives you. Now, when you're starting the book, obviously this is an unauthorized biography of Vince McMahon. I don't know if we'll ever have the, uh, I don't think we'll ever have an actual autobiography because I don't think Vince will ever tell us the true story. But um, when you started working on it, you know, the book only goes up to, uh, you know, 2000. What was kind of the story you were wanting to tell? And, you know, who were some of the people that you were first reaching out to? Sure, yeah. I initially intended to tell his entire life. But what I found was when I sat down to write it, there was just too much. I mean, his life has been astoundingly eventful. And I... I had a word count because it's a wrestling book and I'm trying to sell to the mainstream. And if you try to sell a like 1500 page Vince McMahon biography, which is really what he deserves. um, No one's going to buy that from the mainstream. They're going to be like a wrestling book at that length. No, thanks. So I had to keep it at a certain word count. And I met, I thought, well, I can either very lightly glide on the narrative and tell the whole narrative up to the present, or I can kind of, cut it off at a certain point and tell the story of what I tell the story of and find like a logical endpoint for that story. And I went with the second option. Um, and you know, that means there's more to tell. I did research for his entire life up until the present. So I have lots more, you know, my hope is someday I'll write a sequel. I, it's not my next project. I'm about to announce my next project. Um, but uh, hopefully someday I'll be able to return to this universe and tell more of the story up to the present. But, excuse me, yeah, I, I ended up um, reaching out to, honestly, the first people I reached out to when I was starting my work was journalists, was wrestling journalists, veteran wrestling journalists, because I can speak the same language as them. 
Um, both because I'm conversational in wrestling, but more importantly, because I'm a longtime professional journalist. And they know what I'm looking for, which is, you know, the gist of certain things that I need to do more research on, but would love sort of to lay the land of, and contacts. Because those people actually know who to talk to or know how to talk to the people that I want to talk to. So that was really where it began was talking to journalists who are often very happy to talk to a fellow journalist, I'm happy to say. And I, I do that with other journalists who are working on projects all the time. And that sort of led me to start having some phone numbers for wrestlers and for promoters and for, you know, other people. And it all kind of went from there. Now, of course, the uh, the question I'm always curious about, when you started reaching out to some of the wrestlers about this book, you know, how many, you know, who, maybe not who, but how many were kind of like, no, I'm not going to talk to oh, you. Oh, a lot I'm of people. The business. Oh, it's totally, who totally was people. Yeah. Many people did not want to talk to me. Um, you know, I got more than 150 interviews. I'm very happy with what I got. But, nice. uh, you know, if, <laughs> let's tell me, let me tell you this, put it this way. I got up more than 150 interviews. I probably tried to get more than like 500 interviews. You know, for every interview I got, there were a lot of no's. A lot of my job is just trying to get people to talk to me and reaching out to them. And yeah, I mean, Vince has executed this really cunning maneuver where the more than a century old uh, ethos of wrestling, which is protect the business, has been warped into this situation where because Vince has kind of made himself the business, it's protect Vince. It's not just protect the business, mm -hmm. it's protect the business and if you mess with Vince, you're rattling the business or at least you're rattling your own business because he still is the business and you might get cut out of the deal. So, you know, it's, uh, it's a very weird, uh, almost monopolistic ecosystem that's been built and it can really keep people from speaking out. But I managed to talk to a lot of folks and a shocking amount of them on the record with their names. And I'm pretty satisfied with um, the narrative uh, that came out from all of that. Well, I applaud you for that. And um, I've been enjoying the book myself. Well, thank and yeah, you. speaking from experience, you know, especially when you're at you're an outsider or whatever. The wrestlers really kind of balk and they want to know who you are and kind of oh, yeah, they feel absolutely. you out a little bit before they even say hello. I've Pass had that experience test. many times. Yes. Well, that was how that was another way in which the journalists helped. It wasn't just, you know, fellow journalists would say like here's, you know, so and so's phone number. In fact, it was not often not that. It was more often it was let me reach out to this person who I've interviewed a bunch of times and who trusts me and tell them, hey, I talked to this other journalist, this Reisman person who uh, wants to write and, you know, give give that person a shot. So, I, you know, it's it's so much of, of reporting is just relationship building and learning who to talk to and how to get at somebody um, and not in a bad way, but in terms of getting them to talk to you. You know, that's for me, that's the essence archival research and talking to as many people as you can. All right, Glenn, I'm going to pass the microphone over to you. All right, sure all right. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, we are talking with Abraham Josephine Reisman uh, about Vince McMahon and uh, 
her book about the the, the uh, often uh, entertaining and sometimes, well, most of the time, controversial. It's called Ringmaster, Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America. Uh, my intro to pro wrestling when I was a kid, uh, I was about maybe six, uh, six or seven, around 1982, 83. You see, mm. I'm up here in northwestern Minnesota, which means I grew up in AWA country. And my first uh, time I got to wow. see Hogan, it was one of my earliest memories of pro wow. wrestling, was him working as a, a heel. Yeah, he came into the, came in initially as a heel in the W or the AWA with Johnny yeah. Valiant, yeah. and then this whole thing with the Rocky Three stuff and the whole thing. Yeah. Hulk was such an irresistible force. Then you couldn't boo the guy when he got to the AWA. It was sort of the time where he got to really kind of learn how to become what became the phenomenon. Of oh Hulk yeah, Hogan. I say that in the book at the end. You know, I'm talking in the epilogue about the whole. Hulk versus Vince uh, storyline from 2006 or whatever. Mm-hmm. I can't. All of a sudden, I'm like, not 2006. I can't get the year off the top of my head. But um, uh, when they were going after one another, and it was like, you know, I created Hulkamania and I'm gonna kill it. And Hogan would say, no, oh, you know, these Hulkamaniacs create Hulkamania. And in the book, I'm like, Vern Gagne created Hulkamania. <laughs> you know, I mean, with a lot of Hulk Hogan in that. But like, Vern Gagne deserves a lot of. A lot more credit than he gets for what happened. You know, it's because he went a little bit further than, and he got more out of Hulk than the previous promoters, including Vince's old man. Including Vince Senior. Yeah, Vince Senior didn't know what to do with him. He just had him go fight Andre and get flattened all the time. You know, it was like trying to talk him into dyeing his hair orange or something, playing up to this Irish stereotype. Could you imagine? The poor guy didn't have barely any hair even then. You know, imagine that. Like, oh, yeah. I know, but but then. Ganya, Ganya just figured out that you, I mean, this is another thing I talk about in the book. <laughs> the other essential ingredient that you can't forget, there's Vern Ganya, Hulk Hogan, and then there is Survivor and Eye of the Tiger. Because I feel like music licensing rights have really robbed the streaming generation of knowing what actually made Hulk Hogan exciting. Because... Eye of the Tiger was a huge part of what made his entrances and therefore the entire Hulk Hogan spectacle cool. And Real American is just not as good a song as Eye of the Tiger. But you watch it in streaming now on Peacock and it's all, or the network, and it's all just Real American plastered over it. And you're like, come on. Yeah, I mean, again, I mean, another guy that I really think should get a lot of credit, some of the credit for helping develop Hulk as far as his stick skills was Mean Gene Okerlund, a guy who Absolutely. ended up defecting over in the early days when Vince did the grand expansion. There was yeah. a lot of times where him and Gene worked together, and yeah, they weren't exactly the most uh, seamless take-one type of interviews. No. They worked with each <laughs> other, and you can look at some of those interviews with Hogan in the locker room. The clock's like yeah. almost midnight. I'm like, okay, what time ah, did you guys get so this so funny. I love that. Yeah, those... God, learn, I didn't make... This didn't make it into the book just because there was so much to talk about, but... Boy, I was so fascinated to learn about how they would have those just day-long marathon promo recording sessions Mm -hmm. because you had to do it for every regional market that you were about to go to. It had to be like the same damn thing if you're (laughs) such and such and you're fighting the junkyard dog or whatever. You'd have to just say over and over again, like, oh, the climax of this is going to be in Boston, and then the climax of this is going to be in New York, and then whatever. It was – I just – the amount of – ridiculous, slightly humiliating labor that wrestlers have put themselves through over the years without having any representation, I just find completely fascinating. Like, I just don't think I could 
I don't think I have the stamina for something like that. But I guess drugs helped at the time. Yeah, that kind of fueled the industry. Let's just yeah, uh, let's, let's just, just not, say it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, let's not just try to kitty walk around it because that was the that was basically what kept these guys into a, to a degree. Of course, there was yeah. maybe a few straight arrows because look at what Vince put them on the treadmill that they got put on yeah. that they already had inherited to a degree when they were driving sure. in there in different territories in those baloney, those big baloney blowout uh, yeah, road no trips kidding. from one town yeah. to another. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was a born, that's actually a bone of contention that Vince has used to shield himself, which is. You know, I think back to that HBO Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel segment from, I believe it was 2003, where the reporter is asking Vince, you know, do you feel any responsibility for all these early deaths among your ex-wrestlers? And Vince just says, absolutely not. I'm not responsible for the habits these guys picked up in the way the industry used to be back then because I wasn't the entire industry back then. That mm-hmm. That's the excuse. <laughs> is but, this was how things were and i didn't it's basically just i didn't start it that's yeah. that's what the argument he says it more eloquently but what it boils down to is just i didn't start it so therefore i'm not responsible for perpetuating it no but um, on, on his way to being an empire builder he exacerbated it and you look at the the trail of of, of guys that died way before their time i know i it's know just, it, it's depressing but yet it's impressive in a gothic dark way it is there is this degree to which you look at what vince has pulled off in his career and in his life and you have to admit very few people have been successful in the way he has and to the degree he has within his industry I always say, of course, you have to keep in mind, although he's developed a stranglehold on wrestling that he has yet to let go, um, it is important to put in perspective that after he buys WCW, his competition was not other wrestling because there wasn't really any of note that he was felt threatened by. It was ultimate fighting and MMA, and he kind of lost that fight, you know? I mean, he's a genius to a certain extent, but also, you know... There were forces that at one time were smaller than him that he was sort of trying to even foster a little bit that overtook him in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the things for, for Vince, though, is like anytime he kind of went outside the wrestling bubble, even before yeah. he really uh, he bought the company from from his father. I mm. mean, I mean, the early stuff was quite memorable infamous like the evil Knievel jump evil the, Knievel, all the, snake river canyon jump snake river the, canyon jump all the enoki i mean yeah. into the 80s uh people kind of forgot about that he uh, had some dipped his toe into uh boxing with the sugar ray leonard donnie lalon fight yeah no vince try i mean this is something he has in common with the subject of my last biography stan lee vince and stan both really tried hard for success outside of the industries in which they had kind of just accidentally become very successful Mm -hmm. and famous. Mm -hmm. You know, Stan mostly just wanted to make it in Hollywood in either film or television, but Vince has branched out in a lot of different directions. Um, You know, he was making movies, you know, he made albums. Like there was all of the the books, you know, there were all of these attempts to move into other industries, sometimes with entirely different companies that were maybe under the Titan Sports aegis, but were Mm -hmm. not, we're not wrestling related, such as the World Bodybuilding Federation yes. or, you know, Ico Pro, whatever. Um, at the XFL, the second XFL, like he's tried this so many times to build something that is as impressive as his wrestling empire outside of that wrestling empire. And it hasn't happened, really. 
Yeah, go with ahead. the W. Oh, well, someone's gonna say with the WBF, he got to play the role of kind of the upstart uh, yeah. and, and, and took on the monopoly that was the Weeders. The Weeders, absolutely. The Weeders had this basically just. <laughs> it's funny. The Weeders were basically just as completely amoral, if not just immoral, yes. as businessmen. Um, as the McMahons and other wrestling promoters had been. But I always find it interesting. They kind of took steroids seriously. Like, that was actually what Vince was trying to exploit when he started the World Bodybuilding Federation was the steroid crisis was already starting. And Vince makes this kind of counterintuitive crazy move to be like, you know what? Everyone's crazy about steroids right now. Why don't I start a bodybuilding league, you know? And more importantly, his pitch to the bodybuilders and to the fans was like it's bodybuilding like it used to be wink wink and the reason for that was the weeders had started to crack down on steroids and they had like taken somebody they'd like vacated the title because it had been revealed that the champion had steroids and like a bunch of people got disqualified and you know so the weeders definitely were not ethical businessmen for the most part but Say what you will, they did actually try to take a stand on steroids. And I can't remember what you were saying. I Maybe you were just talking about the weeders, but remind yeah, me yeah. if there was a question there. No, no, I kind of just brought it up just to, yeah, yeah, just got to kind it. of open okay. up the wound of it. And, of course, you know, Vince tried to get into the supplements. I mean, the Ico Pro. I think the real Ico Pro was supplied by Zahorian, but, I mean, the Ico yeah, Pro right, that he tried no to sell. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's and again, you go into the movies. I, I mean, another guy, we go back to Hulk Hogan. That was Ver Vince's really first true game into the film oh, industry yeah. was with No Holds Barred. No Holds Barred, which there are so many questions I still want answered about <laughs> No Holds Barred. I will fully confess that if you read this book and you are coming there for the true story of No Holds Barred, you will be disappointed, as I was, by the fact that everybody who was involved with it does not want to talk about that movie. Like, they just did not get back to me or they did get back to me and said, absolutely not, I am not talking about working on No Holds Barred. So... You know, similar responses, by the way, for the Hulk Hogan uh, rock and wrestling cartoon. Everyone involved in that was like, no, I'm not talking about that. Um, but, you know, yeah, No Holds Barred comes out in 1989, and it's this total bomb, you know? I mean, it's a terrible movie. I think anyone mm -hmm. would tell you it's a terrible movie, anyone even who was involved in it. <laughs> um, and it really was a huge problem in the Vince Hogan relationship. Like, it came out, and the bombing of it... I mean, I, I like it in the, in the book. I liken it to a couple going through a mutual tragedy, you know, which is really what it was. I mean, I'm not the only person to make that comparison. Bret Hart, others have said, ta looking at Vince and Hogan back in the day, it was like seeing a couple. That was not... It was like, not in a sexual way, although I'm sure people have made innuendo, but really what they just mean is these were two people who were very tight and whose destinies were really bound up in each other and who had a very close relationship. Mm -hmm. But then they go through this thing where they created... They really created that movie together. It was not just a Vince directive. They, like, wrote the screenplay together, allegedly, or at least one draft of it, and, like, were just holed up in a in a Florida hotel room near the beach, just cranking out stuff for two or three days. And so when the movie bombed, it was really hurtful to both of them. And it really started to drive a wedge, especially because reportedly Hogan still demanded his full fee and Vince wanted to stiff him on part of it because the movie had done so badly. So, you know, yeah, no holds barred, not recommended viewing, but it is a fascinating little artifact, you know? It's like right after 
Vince has killed kayfabe somewhat inadvertently by pushing for deregulation and trying to get out of lawsuits, he puts out this movie where kayfabe is real, you know? <laughs> like, the world had just found out very publicly in the New York Times and the New York Post that wrestling was not real. And then he puts out this movie where the entire purpose of it is that you have to believe, oh, it's a world where wrestlers are really in a legitimate sporting competition. And it was just like the worst possible timing. Yes. You know, funny story about uh, No Holds Barred. I'll just throw this in real quick. I did a show back in uh, 2015. Stan Hansen was there. Mm. And me and the promoter, we went up to Stan and we said, hey, we'd like to do a promo for us. We offered him good money for this, too. Yeah. And we wanted to have him come in the locker room after two of our heels were doing their after their promo and walk in and just kind of look at him and go, tiny whiners. And he said, no, I am not doing that. <laughs> Flat out, no. Wow. And we offered him good money for this. And Stan was like, yeah. ah, that ain't happening. <laughs> no, people have to know what's, I mean, so much of wrestling, so much of wrestling and success in wrestling is knowing how to kind of ride what's cool, what feels cool which is something that's so intangible and that you can't really teach. But the people who are over, who get over, sometimes that overness is very brief because the moment in which they're in sync with what's popular and edgy is only for a short time. And some people end up being stars for a very long time because they're able to kind of either be timeless or ride the zeitgeist and evolve. Um, and I can't remember where I was going with that, but, um, you know, that's it's it's... It's a fascinating ecosystem. I was so gratified to be able to jump back into this world with new eyes, having in the interim between my enthusiasms, you know, having become somebody who writes biographies and who is a journalist and like is lucky enough to have the resources to be able to pull that off. I was so gratified to be able to play around in the sandbox, especially with, you know, this concept of kayfabe. Like, I really think if I, if, I can, if I can get one thing over with readers of this book, especially mainstream readers who are not familiar with wrestling, it's kayfabe rules, kayfabe wins, you know, for better and often very much for worse, living in a state of confusion about what's real and what isn't and kind of confusing yourself and others about fact and fiction can be very lucrative. It can be very lucrative. It can make you very powerful and very wealthy. And I want people to beware of it and try to get better at discerning it. You know, that, you know, I, co I coined this term in the book, neo kayfabe, which refers to kind of after 1989, when it becomes revealed that wrestling is not on the level as a sporting competition, you gradually see the emergence of what we have now, which is this sort of neo version of that, where the assumption is not, hey, this, what, hey, kid, what you're about to see is real. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's what you're about to see is all fake, so don't worry about it. But, wink, wink, wouldn't it be crazy if these two guys who are about to have this match actually did hate each other behind the scenes and then one of them hurt the other on live television? You know, that's how you actually drum up enthusiasm for wrestling is you create a story behind the story, but that story behind the story is just as manufactured. That's how you win. You know, you just commit to this big bundle of truths, half-truths, and outright fictions and just commit to all three with equal intensity and the sky's the limit for you. I'm going to bring Mike Curdy back into the conversation because, Mike, I know you have a little bit more to ask here for our guest. 
I do. I, I have a, and actually a pretty big question I'd like to ask. Hit um, me. During, during the work on this book, you know, you had a very personal event that uh, happened. You came out as a transgender. I did, yes. Uh, yeah. And how did that kind of change? Did that change, like, the focus? That's how people reacted to you or talked to you? Because, I mean, I know in wrestling, you know, we are still kind of, they are still kind of, uh, you know. Weirdly, I have network. not been treated, I, weirdly, I have not been treated, at least in any kind of notable way, poorly as a trans person by anyone in wrestling. I I mean, most of the reporting I did for this, even the writing, I was uh, still, you know, identified as cisgender, as a boy. But then, you know, there was this very eventful week where I decided to come out as trans then the Wall Street Journal allegations against Vince McMahon came up, which led to me writing an article about Rita Chatterton for New York Magazine. And then I finished the first draft of my book. And then the Rita article came out. And it was like, over the course of this one week, a lot of life upheavals happened. And I don't think they were, I don't think they were unrelated. I think the process of writing this book really helped me explore a lot about gender, basically. This is not a book of gender theory. In fact, gender I don't really bring up in a theoretical or academic way at all, but it's it just it's a story. It's wrestling. There's so many gender roles and subversions of gender roles in the wrestling ecosystem. And that was something that really spoke to me this time around. You know, my partner is trans and we had wa- and like I said, she has interest in wrestling independent of me. And had always sort of, she'd come to it as an adult, as a professional adult, and she'd always saw it through this kind of queer lens. And so watching all this wrestling, including a lot of wrestling that I'd seen already as a youth with her and kind of getting that queer perspective really gave me a new way of thinking about gender. You know, because gender and kayfabe have a lot in common. It's something that is both real, but also made up. You know, I mean, gender is not something that you can sort of hold much as like being a heel or being a baby face is not something you can hold. It's not a substance. It's a collection of traits that you really, that are meaningful to you. And kayfabe is everywhere, but gender is like an especially notable example of that. And more importantly, there's so much gender anxiety and gender longing in wrestling because Yes, more often than not, the explicit text is very heteronormative and cisnormative and very, like, you know, anti-whatever in terms of being uh, kind of retrograde. But at the same time, it's still mostly men wearing very few clothes, and the clothes they're wearing are very brightly colored, and they're getting to show a huge range of emotion, a huge range of emotion. Most importantly, weakness and vulnerability. They get to show themselves, not only get to, they have to show themselves in pain every match. And oftentimes even more than the match, you know, and something backstage, whatever. You have to show yourself being weak and being hurt. And this sort of aspiration to be able to express your gender in alternative ways, I think is just everywhere in wrestling, even if you're not aware of it. And so... That was really inspiring. And also it was just like I'd spent a couple of years inside the head of Vince McMahon, who's very macho and has very specific views about what gender is. And I just didn't want to, you know, having been in that world at an extremity for a couple of years, I was like, I don't really want to be a part of that anymore. You know, 
I was kind of walking away from that um, as a personal choice. Well, for me, I applaud you for that because, you know, uh, I use wrestling as a way for my son to kind of learn more about, you know, gender and all that. Because, you know, wrestlers like Nyla Rose, Sonny Kiss, I use them as examples as a way so he can kind of understand it more. And I can now, you know, look at you and go, hey, you know, this person this book on Vince McMahon, he knows who Vince McMahon is. You know, he likes Aww. to, you know, he's into reading. But, so I can use this and say, hey, they came out as during this time and blah, 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 blah. So That's I great. Probably, that know, means a lot yeah, to I me. Guess. Thank you so much. Yes. No, I I, I, I think it's, uh, it, these things are all very tied up. Wrestling is a very interesting gendered space. And I love that young people these days can see gender in interesting ways. I'm sure talking about it through wrestling you know, your kid's getting a whole different perspective than what I did, which thank God, because I was watching the Attitude Era and boy, the explicit text really drowned out whatever implicit queerness may have been there because it was just so homophobic and transphobic and all of that. I find it's just a way, you know, it's something he's interested in and he knows about it. So it's yeah, just kind totally. of a way to introduce that too. So without no, having to it's go a great idea. an actress or a musician or whatever, it's an easier way to do it. Anyways, one thing I'd like to ask before we wrap up this interview is, as you're writing the book, you know, it ends in 2000, but as you're putting it all together, as we mentioned last year, all these allegations came out about Vince, all the the paralegal and all these. Did you do anything to kind of change the tone of the book? Did you add a little bit to it because of that? Or did you even handle that situation at all, being that you stopped at the year 2000? Um. Uh, you know, I'm sorry. I really apologize. I just, I, I had my agent called me while you were asking me that and I had to decline the call and I totally missed the beginning of the question. Can we go back? Can you just tell me what the beginning of the question was? And I will then answer it in full detail. <laughs> I apologize. On, when you, while you're working on the book, all the allegations came out about. Yes. The yes. How did they affect, that? how did yes. they affect what happened? Yes. You know, because the book ends, the core narrative ends in 1999, it only really influenced the introduction and the epilogue which did have to get updated. And of course, now they're out of date again because when we went to print, Vince was, you know, not the chairman and CEO anymore. And now he's sort of the chairman again. So it's like, well, you can't win them all. But I didn't have to change that much. No one who reads my book, not knowing anything about wrestling, and then learns after reading my book about the allegations that led him to step down, um, well, I guess I talk about this in the book, but, you know, if they, if they learn about what's happened since the book came out, they won't feel like the book deceived them. You know, there's nothing in the book that contradicts the, um, emerging narrative about what allegedly happened. The book is very much in the same vein as that reporting, you know? So yeah. I'm, I'm hoping people will be forgiving about the fact that I still have it sort of as past tense. Uh, you know, he was in charge or whatever, but you know, that's, there's only so much you can do about something like that. So since we spent this last hour talking about, you know, Vince McMahon and the book and everything, how can our listeners find the book? When is it released and how can they find you on social media? Sure. Yes. Well, if you'd like to uh, pre-order the book, just go to ringmasterthebook.com, ringmasterthebook.com. That's the official site. Or you can go to abrahamreisman.com, and that's R-I-E-S-M-A-N.com, abrahamreisman.com. 
Um, the book comes out March 28th, the Tuesday before WrestleMania. There will be a launch party in Los Angeles um, on March 29th with live wrestling, including Tyler Bateman and a bunch of other people. Um, so if you're in the Los Angeles area, also go to ringmasterthebook.com to RSVP for that. And if you're looking for me on social media, I spend way too much time on Twitter, and you can find me there. That is at Abraham Joseph. So um, thank you so much for having me on.